God, we just take a moment to uh, just acknowledge your presence. God, we thank you that you right now are loving us. God, we thank you right now that you see us. And God, Holy Spirit, you know just where we're at emotionally, you know where we're at just in terms of life right now. And God, we just pray you would meet us uh, right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last week, we talked about connecting with God through Scripture. And one thing I did was um, did a little bit of history of people connecting with God through the Scriptures. And we realized that this idea of us sitting down with Bibles and having our own personal devotion with our own Bible in hand is very, very new in history. And, uh, and for most of church history, people uh, didn't have their own Bible. They had to go to church to hear the Bible. They had to memorize Scripture. And I want to do a little bit of his, church history and music because it's kind of interesting to know the history of how people have connected with God, as maybe it was for you last week with Scripture. And so I want to begin by talking about um, sort of church history and music. And I just want to summarize it because if I were to summarize the whole scenario of church history and music, I might summarize it in a few different ways. First of all, I might summarize it this way. The church says, musicians, please make music for us. It helps us connect with God, but don't get too crazy. Musicians respond, we're going to get crazy. I'd <laughs> sum up church history and music that way. Or I might sum it up this way. The older generation, we don't like your new music. It's not worshipful. And the younger generation, we're going to worship to it anyways. I'd be, sum up church history and music that way. Uh, I might just sum it up this way, and this is the, the positive part of it, as one priest and musician said, the end of all good music is to affect the soul. Uh, that we all know that there's something about music that is powerful, there's something about music that helps us connect with God, there's something about music that, that really does move us in, in the soul level. And, and this is why throughout church history, music has always been a huge part of the gathering of the church. And, um, and it's why we spend, you know, 25 minutes to half an hour uh, m- musically connecting with God. And you look at any Christian tradition, music is always involved because there's something about music that, that puts us in a place that helps us connect with God. Uh, there's a passage in 2 Kings chapter 3 that I love. There's a prophet named Elisha, and he is called upon to to hear a message from the Lord. And the first thing he does when he is called, it says this, he, he shouts out, now bring someone who can play the harp. And the first thing he, he needs when he's trying to hear God, he says, bring me a musician. And it says, when the harp was being played, the power of the Lord came upon Elisha. Now, there's something about music for a lot of people that helps them connect with God. That when the music is connecting with them, that it just seems easier to to, to recognize the presence of God and to hear the voice of God. And, and Christians throughout all of history would testify to this music somehow helps people connect with God. And right from the very beginning, we see, I mean, actually in the whole scriptures we see, that this idea of singing and song and music is actually spoken of more than even things like prayer. It's spoken of more than even like the idea of worship, that it is central to the, all of Scripture. And in fact, right from the very, very beginning, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 21, this is sort of the first mention of music, 
It says, Jubal, the first of all who play the harp and flute. And we're made in the image of God. And God himself is musical. We see in Zephaniah, it actually says that God sings over us. He loves you so much that he sings over you. Uh, he is a musician himself, and he creates us in the image of God. And so the, the, these folks early on in the scriptures are making instruments, and they're singing, and they're uh, making music because it affects their, their soul. Later on in the Old Testament, we see uh, they got very much into music, and they had whole tribes of people who were dedicated to making music, like the, the, the Levites and the musicians in First Chronicles 16. It says they used their trumpets and cymbals and other instruments to accompany their songs of praise to God. Or 1 Chronicles 13, it says, David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. And, and here it says that they were singing and playing music with all of their might. And you can just picture this with their excitement. And... Uh, might remind us of that story in 2 Samuel 6 where it says that, that David danced before the Lord with all his might. And, and this is where the idea of David dancing in his underwear comes from because he was dancing in not the kingly outfit but a, a priestly ephod which was a bit more of an undergarment and he's dancing like crazy and he gets criticism for it and he says, I'm going to even get more undignified than this because I just want to praise the Lord. I mean, they, they got into it in the Old Testament. Uh, you can just imagine these these parties and these they were having and you know what did they sing well we actually have a lot of their songs recorded that's what the psalms are the psalms are actually it's like their mixtape if you were from those days or your 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 playlist on on your uh on your phone this was their playlist i mean you look at a lot of the psalms have notes about music and so psalm 4 you will see it's for the choir director a psalm of david to be accompanied by string instruments. Psalm 5 is to be accompanied by the flute. Psalm 6 is to be accompanied by an eight-string instrument. And some of these Hebrew words that describe these instruments, we have no idea even what they, were, they are. They're just some sort of instrument that they had. But all these psalms were sung. These were their songs. And if, so you wonder what they sang. They sang the psalms. Of course, in, in Hebrew and Aramaic. And some of these, these songs, you, you read them, and it's just like, man, this must have been quite the party. Just like, it would be, to me, I just picture like a Jesus rave when I, when I mean, let I me mean, picture this song. <laughs> praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty works, praise his unequaled greatness, praise him with a blast of the ram's horn, praise him with a lyre and harp, praise him with a tambourine and dancing, praise him with strings and flutes, praise him with a clash of cymbals, praise him with a loud clash of cymbals. That's my favorite line right there. Let everything that breath has breath sing praises to the Lord. Praise the Lord. I mean, probably hard to sing that song in, you know, in a, in a somber way. But you can just picture all of Israel, the temple, just shouting and having instruments, and again having like a party Jesus rave as they praise Jesus. And and that's the Old Testament. The New Testament, uh, not a lot actually talked about when it comes to music, but you see it here and there. Not a lot talked about when it comes to, to instruments. Uh, but we see Jesus, right after the Last Supper, it says, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. And, and those hymns would have not been like our modern hymns, but they would have been the Psalms. Again, that's what they sang. Those were their songs. And many scholars think that Jesus here would have sung Psalm 118, 1617 to Psalm 118, the Hallel Psalms. 
We see the early church, some of the, this idea of music and singing in the early church in Ephesians 5. It says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And part of that is this singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And so right from the beginning of the church, the early church in the New Testament, we see this idea of singing and music and celebration. We see uh, very few mentions of instruments in the New Testament, but there are some, like 1 Corinthians 14. talks about, Paul says, instruments like the flute or harp must, be, must play the notes clearly or no one will recognize the melody. Now, when you get into the early church to about the 4th century, uh, we see that the church kind of moved away from Jewish influence kind of music to Greek influence kind of music. And one thing you see throughout all of history is the church... Uh, generally will end up following sort of the music of the culture, but often, you know, they're like hundreds of years behind. Uh, uh, but, but we see the early church began to move towards more of a Greek influence because a lot of the new people coming in the church were Greek because of the Greco-Roman world. They weren't Jewish, they were the Gentiles. And so music became to be, uh, came to be more influenced by Greek culture. And if we want an idea of the kind of music they sung, well, we can kind of get a glimpse because uh, scholars say that the, the, the music of the early church would have been quite Greek, and we actually have an example of sort of a Greek-style song from about 200 BC. This is actually the oldest surviving complete musical composition that they have ever found on the earth. And, uh, and they kind of think this is probably what the music of the early church sounded like. And uh, here's just a kind of a rendition, just a quick clip of what this would have sounded like. In per this is not a Christian song, but this was a secular song, but scholars think the early church uh, sang these kind of Greek-style songs. Something like that anyways. Also from this period, uh, this is actually the oldest Christian uh, hymn, if you will. It's called the Oxyrhynchus from about 300 AD. It's the oldest Christian hymn we have that actually contains musical notes for instruments. And so we do know, contrary to some people's thinking, that the early church did use instruments. At least some of the churches did. And uh, so they have found this, and it's got notations for for uh, musical instruments, and I think I do have a clip of, of uh, sort of a, uh, someone uh, doing a modern rendition of this early song from about 300 AD. <laughs> So that's kind of how Christians did it in about 300 AD. And, and then uh, the sort of there was this move throughout this time where some sort of the influential leaders began to sort of uh, distrust and to try to move away from musical instruments and to move away from being too creative with their music. Again, musicians always want to be creative. And church leaders sometimes say, you know, that's, that's too, too edgy. <laughs> and it happened in this time. Uh, like Clement of Alexander. And Alexandria wrote 
that plucking strings was godless and that the flute was erotic leading to dancing, drunkenness, and every sort of trash. And, and there's this idea that musical instruments were bad that sort of started to creep in. Which I find is actually funny about the plucking strings was godless because, uh, no kidding, when we first planted this church, which was back in 2005, it was, uh, I mean, we started with karaoke because we didn't have a lot, of, a lot of folks and no musicians. But a few years later, we, we finally got a guitar player. And he was strumming his guitars and had an older gentleman who was coming to the church who basically said, you know, I can't come to your church anymore. And so I kind of sat down with him because sometimes I sit down and say, like, why are you leaving the church? And, and one of his reasons was is because the guitar player was strumming the guitar. And he literally said, you know, that's just, that's too much of the, you know, it's too modern and it's too heretical. And he mentioned something about the devil, that it brings the devil. And he, and he literally said, if the guitar player just plucked the guitar, he would be okay. But according to Clemp of Alexandria, that's, that's godless too. But anyways, he, he didn't abstain because of the strumming guitar. Um, but anyways, there was this debate going on. And then there were others like St. John of Christendom who who rejected this allegorical musical instrument teaching because those who started saying instruments are bad in the church had to take all the references to instruments in the Old Testament and they allegorized them. And they said it was just, an, you know, the harp is an allegory of the angels or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. And they would teach that no instruments were ever allowed or should never be allowed in the church. But he started, he was saying, no, no, the instruments are good and they, they sweeten the music. And then, of course, we always have this controversy of the new music coming in, which threatens some of the, the older generation. And for instance, Basil the Great in 375 AD warned the younger people to avoid the wicked tunes, wicked tunes of contemporary music in favor of the wholesome sounds of the ancient music. And then Augustine comes in, and uh, he really put a damper on music in the church. Uh, he could only accept music that was used with restraint, as opposed to church music that would inflame the passions. And so he was like, any music that moves you to emotional states, it's not a good thing. Uh, he's quoted saying, when I find the singing itself more moving than the truth which it conveys, I confess that this is a grievous sin. And at those times, I would prefer not to hear the singer. And sometimes we still get this flavor from folks. Like when the music gets too good, <laughs> some people say, well, that's just performance. It's like, well, no, the musicians are actually playing with all their skill and abilities and gifts to Jesus. It's like, but there's this weird idea sometimes that people think if a musician gets too good that it somehow takes the attention off Jesus. Well, well any of our gifts, we want to play to our ability and, and to glorify God. But from this point in history, uh, most churches moved away from instruments. Most churches moved away from being super creative with their music. And this is the longest era of the similar kind of music from about the 5th to the 15th century, the Roman Catholic Church kept this kind of music way past this date. But this is the, the land of the chants, like plain chants, which eventually moved into Gregorian chants. The Eastern Church had more Byzantine chants, which are a little more free. Uh, the Gregorian chants are the most famous kind of chants, and there's kind of this weird um, legend about how these appeared. And the legend is that Pope Gregory one day had the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove and land on his shoulder and sing a Gregorian chant into his ear, and he writes it down, and this is sort of where they came from. Most scholars just believe that's a, a, a fairy tale, not true, but who knows. But here's an example of Gregorian chants, and again, this is the style of music that, if you look at overall church history, this was the, the longest-running style of worship music, Gregorian chants. Yes. 
later on in this period, some churches actually began to move back to instruments, the pipe organ. Uh, some churches began to stick pipe organs in their church. Uh, this is also, uh, this, maybe if you're a musician, you might know this, but there's this thing called the devil's instrument, yeah, interval. Uh, that certain intervals and note progressions were not compatible with ho holiness, like the tritone. And, uh, and, and actually, this is actually more of a myth, because there were actually songs written in those days with tritones. And a lot of people think this was a myth, but uh, it was Latin for the devil in the music. But scholars think that the phrase devil in the music wasn't because they thought the tritone brought the devil into the music. It was because it was hard to sing. And that's why they called it was the devil in the music, because it was hard to sing. Not because it was actually rejected, but that's, that's kind of debated. And then we get into the Reformation. Martin Luther, Protestant Church, Roman Catholic Church goes this way. And, uh, and this was the era, especially for Protestant, Protestant churches, where they only sang the Psalms. In fact, a lot of the Gregorian chants and plain chants were only the Psalms as well, or renditions from the Psalms, but it's very Psalm-based. Some churches, even today, will only sing the Psalms. Uh, some churches today will only sing the Psalms without any musical instruments as well. Some of those traditions from long ago still maintain it. So you can get these these books of the Psalms that have music written to them. And so as if we gathered as a church, we would just sing, sing the Psalms. There are some churches that do that. Uh, John Calvin, who's the guy who started the whole Reformed church, stated that only Old Testament Psalms sung with a metrical rhythm were appropriate for worship. So you never ever sing anything other than the Psalms. It's the only style that's godly and appropriate and the only style that God likes. Uh, John Wesley he said, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. <laughs> I mean, again, uh, there is a strong thing like you don't use instruments in church. Uh, but I mean, a lot of Roman Catholic churches were a little bit hip in those days because at least they were doing their Gregorian chants with pipe organs in some ways. But a lot of the Reformational churches, Protestant churches, still rejected the use of instruments and they only sang the Psalms. But then this, this new style started creeping in a little bit called a hymn. And this was a modern style of music that was often still based on psalms. But Martin Luther, he started to write some hymns. And probably the most famous is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And then the guy named Isaac Watts, who's known as the father of the hymn movement, began to, to start writing hymns. And he came in 1707 with a, a whole collection of hymns and spiritual songs. And he writes them because he was young and he thought the church music in his church was really lame. <laughs> this is what he says when he was a teenager. He says, I see the dull indifference, the neg negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of the whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips. Might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. In other words, he just thought the psalm and singing the psalms was boring, irrelevant, and he was a young person, and he was like a musician, and he wanted to change things. And so his dad says, well, why don't you write some of your own music? And so he started writing this brand new style of music called hymns. And this is the era of the hymns when we have all these famous songs, like when I surveyed the wondrous cross or Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watch, which is the most famous Christmas song. Whoa, I almost stepped on your finger. Uh, but believe it or not, Joy to the World actually was not a Christmas song. It had nothing to do with Christmas when it was first written. It was based on a psalm about the return of Jesus, like Joy to the World, the Lord has come. It's talking about the second coming. But it develop, eventually developed into a Christmas song. And now it's the most famous Christmas song. And so we have all these amazing 
hymns that started coming out, but these were very controversial just because it's a new style of music. And again, all throughout church history, when a new style of music comes in, it was very controversial. One detractor said, Christian congregations have shut out divinely inspired psalms and taken in Watts flights of fantasies. Churches split, families split. You talk about the worship wars about 20 or 30 years ago, well, it would happen in these days. I mean, one pastor said this of these, this new style music of hymns coming in. He says, there are several reasons for opposing them. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style because there are so many songs you can't learn them all or it puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. Or this new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. Or it's a money-making scene and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. This is a guy attacking pastor uh, or the, the hymn writer Isaac Watts. And I mean, you think that was written yesterday in some cases. Because again, this is just a theme throughout church history. The new music is always rejected and the old music is the godly stuff and the new stuff is not, not very good. And then we get to the 1900s, and this is still the era of hymns. I mean, all the hymns are written in kind of King James style, so lots of these and thous and yees and thines and Ebenezers and all kinds of weird things that we don't even know what they are anymore. But also at this time, because of the influence of jazz and other music in the culture, this is when like sort of old school, at least old school for today, gospel music began to emerge in the church. And, uh, and people like John W. Peterson... Again, he was criticized for being musically similar to the music hall songs of the late 1800s. I mean, he's getting criticism for writing songs that sound like they're 70 years old. <laughs> and again, that's usually how it goes in the church. But here's an example of this new style gospel music that began to, to infiltrate churches in this era. Wonderful word of the king. See if we can get it to work. Wonderful word of the King, Jesus is coming again. The forest and flower exclaim. It reminds me of an old music, but yeah, it was scandalous, I, mean, I guess. And then, now we enter our current phrase, which really began in the 60s, and this is where they say contemporary Christian worship actually really began, was in the 60s. And the father of Christian rock... His name is Larry Norman, and I think his songs are still really cool. And from the 60s, he began to write some, some sort of modern rock and roll music. And I tell you, of course, it was really controversial today. But here's one of his early release Larry Norman Christian rock and roll songs. Wave my sword and you can't take away the Lord. Well, he made me and he saved me. Kind of a sweet song, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Written in the 60s. And of course today, I mean, we have every style of music you can possibly think of. I mean, you just go on YouTube and you can get the heaviest, heaviest metal Christian worship music to mellow Christian worship to every single style you can possibly think of. And, uh, and uh, you know, we, we try at least 
in our church to at least try to keep up with some of the, the newer worship music coming out because if there's one thing you learn throughout church histories is if churches that don't change their music eventually end up kind of dying out. And, and it's always hard. It's really hard for the older generation. And, uh, and I think every generation of, of Christians throughout history, when the music style changes, it can be, it can be really difficult. Um, but there's a, a role of trying to make room for the newer generation and help newer people feel welcome in the church. And I love the heart of some people. I mean, Kathy's dad is still my favorite because uh, he's passed away now, but he used to come here and, and he hated our music. I mean, he hated it because he, he liked the old hymns because that was his generation. And, and, you know, sometimes he would just go like this or just put his earplugs in or whatever. He didn't like, but he loved what we were doing in our church because he knew we were reaching young people and he was excited about that, but he didn't like our music. I mean, I know another couple they actually don't go to our church because they don't like our music because, again, they love hymns. They go to another church that does hymns, but they actually give to our church because they love what we're doing. And, and I just love that about some people that are like, yeah, we, know, we always need to be passing the church on to the younger generation, and, uh, and that's part of what's, what happens. So this remaining time, I just want to talk a little bit about connecting with God through music and how we can actually make music and our con- connection with God more meaningful. We have a value here at this church. We have a bunch of them. If you want to know what our church is about, I think they're on the wall out there somewhere. But one of them is intentional time in the presence of God transforms us. And what we, we do when we have music playing here for the first 25 minutes is this is supposed to be intentional time for us to connect with God and to be intentional about recognizing His presence and just connecting with God. And so here's just some ways that you can make worship more meaningful. The first of all is to recognize that your spirit always wants to worship. I mean, when we get here and the music starts, I mean, sometimes it's good just to recognize that your spirit always wants to worship because sometimes, if you're like me, your body sure doesn't and your mind sure doesn't because you're anxious and you're freaked out and the last thing you feel like doing is actually worshiping because you're stressed out or whatever. Or, uh, but just such a pause and, and listen to your spirit and to listen to your soul because as David said in the Psalms, my soul thirsts for you, my soul longs for you, that, that our soul and spirit is always wanting to make a connection with God. And just acknowledging that can bring us to a place where we can hopefully set ourselves up for a better connection through music. And secondly, to worship in a way that's meaningful to you. And this can be hard in a corporate setting, because if you're, uh, you remember our first sermon, we talked about the different kinds of styles that people connect with God in. You have the enthusiasts who like to jump and dance and put up their hands, and then you have the contemplative who just wants to be still and quiet. I mean, sometimes it's hard to be you when the rest of the church is somebody else. And so if you're like a contemplative person who just connects with God really well by being quiet, and you go to a church where everybody's dancing and shouting and putting up their hands, it can be very hard to, to, to worship in your own way because of the peer pressure and crowd mentality or vice versa. If you like to raise your hands and you went to a church where everybody is quiet and somber, it'd be hard for you probably to raise your hands and to jump and shout because there's always this pressure. But the one good thing about this church is there's always a mix. And we try to open it up and say, connect with God the way you want to connect with God. And if you want to dance and raise your hands, great. And if you want to sit there and just reflect, great. But to try to connect with God, that is meaningful to you. And maybe... For one week, it might be jumping and shouting, and the next week, it might be being very quiet and still. And number three, to keep yourself aware of the presence of God. 
I mean, it can be easy for us to get distracted. I mean, we've got kids here, which is awesome. We love that. Um, but, you know, noise can sometimes distract us. I don't know you, but thinking about lunch distracts me a lot. Um, whatever it might be. <laughs> but to keep your thoughts on Jesus. Uh, sometimes I, I, I picture Jesus sitting there or Jesus running, you know, dancing around the room and joining in with worship with us. And some of the, adding those things can help us be aware of the presence of God or picturing yourself in the throne room. Number four, to engage with the lyrics. I mean, they're not there just to read, but sometimes you want to take, take those lyrics and absorb them. And sometimes you might sing a lyric and, and you want to hold on to that lyric as you go through that or maybe even sing your own song. I mean, it's one thing just singing words off the screen, but sometimes God is like, well, what's your song? What's your song for me? I want to hear your song. I want to hear your heart. And to take a moment as we sing, just to sing your own song to the Lord. Uh, you can use instrumental sections to worship without words. And uh, the band isn't always singing, and sometimes the band will just play or sometimes go into more of a free worship. And those are times for you to worship with your own words, to worship with your own way. I mean, again, if you're in love with somebody, it's one thing if you just, you know, copied poems off the internet and send it to your loved one, they might eventually say, I want to hear your own words. I want to hear your own voice, your own thoughts. And those instrumental times are just times where you can give your own thoughts and pray your own prayers and connect with God in your own way. Uh, number seven, getting your body involved, it does help make worship more meaningful. Uh, I mean, raising your hands. I mean, there's something about when you engage your body can help. And if you're more of a contemplative person, I mean, even just turning your hand up on when you're seated like this can posture your body in a way that helps you connect with God. And I just encourage you sometimes just to, to open your hands or if you're bold enough to raise your hands because it really does put your body in a position that can help you connect through worship. Number eight, uh, use your imagination. I'm big on this. To use your imagination when you're listening to music. In fact, they've done studies and found that those who connect with God the deepest tend to be people who use their imagination during music and prayer. And so, again, you can, you can picture God in the midst. You can, you can picture the lyrics you're singing. You can picture just being surrounded by the Trinity or being in heaven or whatever it is engaging your imagination can really help you connect with God. And lastly, and I think this is really important in these days, is to use music in such a way just to rest and to receive the presence of God. I mean, we're very much a doing culture. Uh, we like to do, 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 do. <laughs> and sometimes we get to church and we just want to, we, we got to sing and we got to shout and we got to listen. And, and, and sometimes just stopping to receive God's love can be very, very helpful. I mean, you can just go online YouTube sometimes and just throw on maybe more contemplative worship music and just lie on the floor and just receive. But if you're in a relationship with somebody, relationships are always about giving love and receiving love. And sometimes when it comes to, to Christianity, we get stuck in just giving love to God. Just, I'm going to worship you and sing to you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do all this. And sometimes God is just saying, hey, wait a second. I want to love you. <laughs> Would you just stop and relax and chill out and just receive God's love? And one of the best ways to do this is to listen to more contemplative style music or to do what sometimes we call devotional worship. And uh, I'm just going to invite Anastasia up because we're going to spend like about five minutes. Well, we could probably even do 10 minutes. 
five to ten minutes of devotional worship. And um, Anastasia is really gifted at leading this. And what this is, is this is a time for you just to receive. And you'll be tempted to maybe start praying. <laughs> you might be tempted to start doing, but this is actually just a time where you just maybe use your imagination to picture the presence of God. It's a time for you to just receive the love of God. And if you fall asleep, you know what? That's okay. Maybe that's what you need. If, uh, if your mind wanders, that's okay. Maybe, maybe God wants your mind to wander some. It's a time where you just, you just take all the pressure off. And there's a lot of pressure right now with COVID and rules and things to do and Christmas coming up and maybe you got a shopping list. And, and again, we can get anxious, but uh, devotional worship and just receiving in worship is just about just trying to relax. And so let's just begin by just taking a, just a couple deep breaths. I just want to picture the, the eyes of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our eyes are so full of peace. And they're so filled with love. And they're sharing their love for you, with you. So let's just take about five minutes just to receive. To recognize the love of God, to receive the love of God, and to rest in His presence. Slow down. You're 
Just wait on it. Don't fear. I'll change the past. I'll change the future. If you can believe me, right here. I'll take the past. I'm molding the future. thank you that we can rest in you. I thank you that you are our rest. And that you are our peace. And that you are good. And that you are love. I just release all our cares upon you. And I give you our hearts. And give you our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.